everyone. Welcome to tonight's event. For those of you who don't know us, the Forum for European Philosophy has been putting on events like this for the last 20 years. Uh, they're all free to attend thanks to the generosity of our donors and the support of the LSE. So we're very grateful to all of those people. Uh, this is our last event of the term, but we will be starting up again in mid-January. Hope to see some of you there then. In the meantime, if you're dying for some philosophy, if you need it over the Christmas break, please check out our website. We have an extensive archive of podcasts as well as a new blog with articles by academic philosophers detailing their research. So you're very welcome to check that out. Just a few housekeeping matters. First of all, if you could turn off the volume on your phone, that would be fantastic. You can tweet away if you like. Don't, don't feel like you have to turn off your phone, but just turn the volume down so it doesn't interfere with the podcast or the speakers, for that matter. Um, and uh, do be aware that we are recording this for a podcast, so if you ask a question, do wait for the microphone to find you, um, and uh, then your voice will be picked up in the recording. Okay, I'll hand you over to Jonathan, the chair for tonight's event. Thanks, Beth. Good evening, everyone. Uh, I'm Jonathan Birch. I'm an assistant professor of philosophy here at the LSE. I'm also a fellow of the Forum for European Philosophy. And it's great to be chairing tonight's panel discussion on the future of artificial intelligence and its social consequences, or put more simply, on whether machines will rule the world. In the background to this event is that artificial intelligence or AI research is progressing extremely fast. Indeed, arguably so fast that it's led to a growing consensus that we really need to start thinking now about the way we might try to manage the challenges and threats and opportunities that this technology will, will pose us with in the coming uh, years. So it's great to be joined this evening by, by four panellists who in different ways are absolutely at the cutting edge of these debates. I mean, we have, uh, starting on my left and going from left to right, Matea Jamnik, an AI researcher and senior lecturer in the computer laboratory at the University of Cambridge, where she works on programming computers to reason about mathematics in the way that humans do. Then Mark Sprivak, senior lecturer in philosophy at the University of Edinburgh um, and a specialist in the philosophy of mind and in the philosophical foundations of AI. Then Kate Devlin, senior lecturer in computing at Goldsmiths University of London and an expert in human-computer interaction, more generally how people interact with technology. And finally, Hugh Price, who's Bertrand Russell Professor of Philosophy at the University of Cambridge, where he's also a co-founder of the Centre for the Study for Existential Risk. And as was announced last week, uh, will also soon be a director of the new Leverhulme Centre for the Future of Intelligence. So just to give you a sense of the format of tonight's event, uh, what we'll do is we'll focus on four key questions that lie at the heart of these debates about AI and the future of society. Firstly, what is AI currently capable of? Secondly, is human-level AI a realistic possibility? How far away are we from it if it is? Thirdly, how can we expect AI to transform human lives over the next hundred years or so? And fourthly, should we be afraid of AI? Does AI pose, in Hughes' terms, an existential risk? Does it threaten our very existence as a species? So what will happen is that we'll discuss each of those four issues in turn. Um, in each case, we'll first have some introductory remarks from 
one of the panellists and then a discussion among the panellists. And then we'll invite a few brief questions from the audience on that particular topic. And then we'll move on. So we'll start with the first question. This question of where are we now? What is AI currently capable of? Um, and I'd like to invite Matea to start us off on that topic. Oh, thank you very much, Jonathan. Well, good evening, everyone. Um, thank you for inviting me. And yes, I work in the computer lab in Cambridge. And I've done my PhD in AI. And so I'm deeply interested in these issues. And on the question of what AI is capable of, I would start by first talking about what AI actually is. Because the definition, or what we consider to be AI, has changed. In the past, in the 70s, we had a debate that were uh, between weak and strong AI. And um, big promises were made that were never then delivered. So uh, a long-lasting 40-year-old winter of AI ensued. So, um, but recently, or, or at, at that time, I think that everybody would agree that AI was considered to be something that was in, uh, uh, something was considered to be AI if it was it was undistinguishable from a human. Well, in the recently and now, I think we've seen a, a narrowing of a scope where, you know, the fact that we can talk to our phones or that we have the potential of driverless cars, we consider those systems to be AI. And we are no longer promising unachievable goals, but we have much more tangible goals that are specialized but deep and uh, the technology that, that the, 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 the developments in technology have unlocked new potentials that we are now seeing. And so there is a lot of excitement amongst uh, academics, uh, researchers, and industrialists about AI at the moment. And I think that the, there are three main advances in research that have allowed us to leap forward in AI. The first one is that we have masses of data that is generated by us all the time. We have supercomputing power with distributed computing and cloud computing. And we have more and better and more sophisticated machine learning techniques and algorithms. And all of those together have uh, allowed us to revisit various problems that we put to rest 40 years ago. So examples of these advances are plentiful in the media. So we have driverless Google cars, we have Amazon drones delivering parcels, we have personalized medicine and drug discovery, we have Skype do doing real-time uh, translation, we have Siri, Cortona, Google Now um, uh, uh, conversation systems. Um, and we have games that uh, have characters that uh, are hu with human-like reactions. So all of this is bringing a lot of excitement to all of us, and all the problems that we used to have and were, we put to rest uh, that can now be recast as statistical algorithms on masses of data can, can be revisited again. And that's what we are all excited about, because now we have technology to think about these problems again in creative ways. 
So we are deploying systems that are better, faster, more intelligent, but also we're looking at making them better at cognitive tasks. So one of the things that I'm interested in is in studying how humans uh, solve mathematical problems in these sort, of with these sort of eureka steps with intuitive steps. And I'm computationally modeling that on computers, so I'm basically humanizing computer systems in mathematics. So I think that the, the, the future um, is bright. The future is optimistic, in my view. I think that, that we are at the verge of massive changes um, that are on the scale of what the Industrial Revolution has done to, uh, to manual work, what the Digital Revolution has done to our communication of the 20th century, and now I think that we are at the dawn of the AI Revolution. And, of course, there is plenty of philosophical questions that, uh, that uh, arise, and some of them are, are these systems that we see, that we consider intelligent, really human-level AI? And I leave it to my uh, colleagues on the panel to address those questions. Thanks very much, thank Matea. Uh, yeah, thank you very much, Matea. Um, so I want to um, actually just uh, open up a question and, and pick up on, on, on one of the thoughts at the beginning um, from Matteo. So, and that thought is, well, um, how would you know that you had an artificially intelligent system if you found it? So what's the criteria for success for producing an artificially intelligent system? So this is a question which uh, one of the founding fathers of artificial intelligence, uh, Alan Turing, uh, thought about a great deal. Um, so Turing wondered, well, um, what, how would we know if we had an intelligent machine or not? Um, so he had a well-worked answer to that question, uh, and the answer was, is now known as um, the Turing test. So he said that we would have an artificially intelligent machine if we could have a machine that could engage um, in conversation, in text-based conversation, and uh, a human judge would not be able to tell the difference between that machine and a human. They wouldn't be able to detect whether they were conversing with a machine or a human. However, as Matthias said, um, one of the things which has changed in AI research over the past um, 15 to 20 years has been a focus away from producing machines with general intelligence, who are able to perhaps do something like pass the Turing test, towards uh, machines which are able to do much, much more specific tasks, um, to be able to drive cars or to be able to um, help you find music that you really like. Um, so I just want to open it up as a question. Well, if we, if we start producing these kinds of machines, machines which are never going to compete in the Turing test, how do we know that we've got something which is artificially intelligent or not? Could I respond to that, John? I, I mean, one, one, of the, um, one, one of the questions that, that I found coming up a lot uh, um, as I've been um, developing a research project in this area, as a non-specialist coming from outside in philosophy, people have sometimes said to me, but, but what is intelligence? Uh, and we don't even know what it is. Why should we be worried about it? And one of the things I've been inclined to do, um, influenced to some extent by the fact that in philosophy I'm, I'm a pragmatist, and pragmatists think not about, as it were, what things are or what things mean, but about what words do, things of that kind. So I say, look, perhaps in the case of intelligence, we shouldn't be thinking about what's inside. We should be thinking about what these machines can do. And you know, we should be worried if we think that there might be grounds in the future for thinking that, that somehow their capabilities might, might get beyond our control. 
Um, and it, but it's interesting that the Turing test, although it's widely seen as a criterion for what's on the inside, is itself a test about what the, the machines can do. And I'd like to come back to talk about the Turing test as well, because um, it's, it's something that a lot of emphasis is put on in AI about whether or not some, uh, a computer can convince you that it is intelligent. Um, but <clears throat> thinking about uh, recent films, and I don't know if anyone has seen Ex Machina, and the premise behind that was that um, a developer created artificial intelligence, but then presented it as artificial intelligence and said, now that you know it's artificial intelligence, how will you accept it? So it was another, they said, you're taking it further from the, the Turing test. So if you've got, if you're aware that this system exists, um, can you actually then decide whether or not you believe it is intelligent, which I think is a, is a really interesting way of looking at it because it takes away the magic of it and just says, we are giving you these systems, now what do you think about it? Um, so I think there's, there's some interesting stuff there on acceptance of technology. Great, thanks. And back, back to Matea, perhaps some thoughts on the Turing test. And if, if we reject the Turing test as a, as a diagnostic criterion for intelligence, what, what can we use as a diagnostic criterion for intelligence? Well, I think that it's not that we reject the Turing test, but I think that anybody nowadays would consider the driverless car intelligent and, or a phone talking to you and understanding what you want intelligence. So we are considering now much more narrow tasks as intelligent tasks. So. Great. So on this particular issue, then, I'd now like to invite um, three questions from the audience. That's all we'll have time for. Um, so hands up if you have a question. And then we'll take three at once, if we can. Um, do we? There's, so we've got one at the second row here. Let's do that one first. Then one um, much further up there. And remember, wait, wait for the microphone to, you, uh, to come to you before asking a question. Please keep questions short as far as you can. Um, and um, yes, uh, please go ahead. Hello. Uh, so my question would, having that said AI assumed intelligent and try to detect if it can figure out if we are intelligent. So just reverse the question, assume it's intelligent, can it figure out that we are? Okay. Great thought. What I want to do now is take the, the next question and then we'll come back to thoughts on. Uh, yes, thank you. Um, you've uh, raised the question of what is intelligence, but um, I think it would be good for us to know what is artificial. Mm. Uh, because, um, yeah, what is, why, why is it called artificial? I suppose it's vis-a-vis um, -vis the human being, uh, which is natural. So, therefore, I'm thinking if it's artificial, does that make it unnatural? Thanks. And then a third question, I think, from the row in front. There. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. Hiya. Um, this just relates to the um, talk about the Turing test, and I think it might have something to do with the problem posed by... Is it... Um... Yes, sorry, I forgot your name. Um, and, and relating... Um, is there a pro in your view, would there be a problem with a kind of a narrow down or a very specific version of a Turing test? So say, testing whether a machine, whether I can tell that a machine is recommending music to me as opposed to a real person? 
Okay, great. Thanks very much. I mean, three very interesting issues about criteria for artificial intelligence there. I mean, this proposal that we could invert the Turing test so that it's about whether the machine can detect another intelligent agent uh, rather than us detecting it. This thought about what is, what is meant by the artificial bit of AI as opposed to the intelligence bit. And a thought about whether we can narrow down the Turing test to specific contexts. Um, so we, I think we should have Matea first to respond to those questions. So I want to respond first about what is artificial about the intelligence. I think it was just, um, I think it's just a useful um, terminology to distinguish between what humans can do and what systems that we create can do. So I think that if, if it's a system, then we call it artificial intelligence. And if it does anything that is we remotely consider intelligent, so um, as opposed to human intelligent, rather than unartificial or natural. Um, uh, I will leave the philosophical questions to the question to the <laughs> philosophers. What was the, uh, the the other question that? Uh, well, in a way, they, they, we, we had two about the Turing test, perhaps. So perhaps Mark could come back on the further thoughts on the Turing test, the narrowing it down and inverting yeah. it. So this is the idea that um, we could look for um, much more specific tests for intelligence, which are um, related to very particular tasks, like driving a car well or doing a good job at selecting, selecting the music that you like. Um, and there's nothing wrong, per se, with having these more specific tasks and evaluating the device's performance on being able to accomplish those tasks. It's just if you go back and think a little bit about the goals of early AI, it wasn't just intelligence. There was a bunch of other properties that were supposed to go along with a system which was artificially intelligent. That system was thought also to have maybe a mental life of its own. It would have mental properties. It might have beliefs. It might, you know, in some sense have a, have a rich... Uh, a rich mental life like ourselves. Uh, once you switch to the much more specific projects where you're evaluating performance of a particular device at driving a car, then that, that original project, which you know excited people like Turing so much, is, is no longer in view. Thank you. I, I think that there's a tendency for people to think that there's a single thing, intelligence. We know there's a single thing because we, we know we all have it and uh, we're pretty clear that when we think of what each of us has, we're all thinking about pretty much the same thing. So we think, oh, you know, our, our common experience suggests that there's this one thing which is special. But, of course, we have to keep in mind that all the people thinking that are all people who share an evolutionary history, a gene pool, and so on. So the fact that it's the same for us is no indication at all that... that this is this one natural property, intelligence, which is out there in the universe, and you either have it or you don't. It seems much more plausible that there, the, the, the space of possible intelligences has many dimensions, that there are many possible places that a, a, um, a, a, a creature or a machine that in some sense has intelligence could occupy in that space. And I think one of the challenges... Um, for people interested in thinking about the long-term future of artificial intelligence is understanding that space of, of possibilities better so that we have some sense of, of where developments might end up, especially as the machines get more powerful. So in, in, there's a sense in which we want to get away from this idea that there's a single thing, intelligence, yeah. and think of this, this, this multidimensional space of possibilities. 
Yeah, I agree. I agree with you very much. I don't think that intelligence is a linear thing like an IQ test yeah. that you climb up and you are somewhere on that line. I think it's multidimensional, multifaceted, com completely dependent on the circumstances, situation, the world it lives in, that particular thing that we are thinking of as potentially intelligent. So, With regards to the Turing test, when, when Alan Turing came up with the idea of the Turing test, he based it on a Victorian parlour game called the Imitation Game, where it was the, the people had to decide whether they were talking to a man or a woman remotely. So it, it starts off as a very crude example of, of differentiating between two separate things. Um, and when he introduced this idea of the Turing test, it, it, it fitted the purpose quite nicely. I'm sure we've moved on hugely since then. Um, but it's still seen as, as a, a goal, as one of the benchmarks. Um, but it may not be the best-suited benchmark. Um, and, I mean, we saw there was some controversy last year when um, someone claimed to have you know, surpassed the Turing test because they had come up with a chatbot that emulated um, a 13-year-old non-English speaker. And, I mean, that just seems like you're really fudging the rules. They're really kind of pushing it to say that that is challenging. It was, it was essentially um, a chatbot that was designed to work around, that, work around those rules and break it. Um, so I think it is, it's, it's, a, it's a crude um, metric for deciding whether or not something is intelligent, but it currently is a popular one and one that really captures the imagination because it's a very, very simple test. Thanks. I, mean, I wanted to raise one further issue before we leave this, this topic, and that's the question of whether we should be fearful of AI as it currently is now. Because some people look at driverless cars and they look at drones uh, remotely bombing people in faraway countries, and they think these, these technologies are already taking humans out of the equation and taking aspects of our lives out of our control that we have historically tended to have under our control. And they are, are afraid of that. Mm. Are they, is that a misguided fear or is there something in it? I think so, yes. I definitely, I think we should be fearful of not having artificial intelligence. <laughs> so um, I, uh, it's a question of control also. I mean, we program these. We told them what their goals are. These systems don't, don't create their own goals. We give, the, give them to them. And, you know, I can totally foresee that in 2020 we will have driverless cars and uh, everybody will have a driverless car and by 2025 it will be outlawed for a human to drive a car because the collateral damages of people doing it are far exceed what machines can do. So um, I think, yeah, it, the same with personalized medicine. You know, there will be drugs that will be relevant just to you and doing trials uh, on, on uh, masses of people with side effects and so on, prescribe the same thing to everybody. There's a lot of collateral damage there. And so AI, yeah, I think we should be fearful of not having AI. Thanks. Um, should we move on to the second question then, which is, well, so that's a good summary, I think, of where we are now from Matteo. And then, where are we going? Is human-level AI a realistic possibility? If so, how far away from it are we? And what are the philosophical objections that have been raised to the very possibility of human-level AI? And are they convincing or not? Um, to introduce us to that topic, we have Mark. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Jonathan. Um, so what are the things that are um, really difficult for computers to do today, for AI systems to do today? Well, one of the things that um, really stands out um, could be called um, flexible, adaptive, common-sense reasoning. 
So just imagine that you're standing in um, the kitchen, in your flat or house, and somebody asks you to empty your rubbish bin. Now, you would know exactly what to do. Um, You would know that there's no need to um, open the fridge or turn on the oven or get your vacuum cleaner out. Um, You would know how to get over to where your rubbish bin is. You would know how to open the rubbish bin. You would know how to extract the rubbish from it. And you would know what would be a reasonable place um, to put that rubbish. If there are any snags that come up along the way if you're doing this, you would be able to cope with it, no problem. And you'd be able to do all this um, very quickly, um, very reliably, robustly, and without much um, reflection or, or, or thought. Now, what you're doing when you're emptying your rubbish bin is something which is absolutely remarkable. Um, so you're drawing on a vast database of common sense knowledge inside your head. So you're drawing on knowledge about um, how to understand the instruction that was given to you, um, about the causal relationships between the objects in your environment, including the relationships between the parts of your body, um, knowledge about how to intervene on those causal relationships in a very efficient and reliable way in order to achieve your goals, and knowledge about how to modify your plans very quickly and reliably in response to new information coming in, any snags. You're actually doing something amazing, something that no computer today can currently do. And you do so much more than empty your bin. So computers today are good at certain kinds of tasks, and generally those tasks turn out to be, sometimes very surprisingly they turn out to be this, but generally they turn out not to rely on a vast amount of common sense knowledge. So tasks like playing chess, um, detecting spam emails, uh, doing a rough translation from one language to another, and perhaps um, also driving, driving a car. Computers find it hard to do any task that does rely on a very large amount of common sense knowledge. And unfortunately, a lot of things that humans do, and often do quite efficiently, um, turn out to require a huge amount of of common sense knowledge in order to do well, and in some cases in order to to even do it at all. So things like emptying a rubbish bin, tidying a room, or volunteering um, assistance, which is appropriate to the context. Why would common sense reasoning be hard for computers to do? Well, essentially, there seem to be two problems. One problem is that inside you, there's this big database of common sense knowledge, and we've got to find out some way of replicating that information inside an artificial system. That's tricky to do in the first place. Supposing one could even do this, the second problem kicks in. How would the machine then use this enormous database? How would it be able to search through it efficiently and pick out the bits which are relevant to its current task and ignore all the other stuff? Nobody really knows how to solve these two problems in their full generality, and that's why um, current AI systems um, that do rely on common sense knowledge um, tend to operate on very, very limited domains. They do very limited tasks, um, domains for which the problem of acquiring the common sense knowledge and reasoning using it are, are, are tractable. Now, this problem of being able to do good, efficient, adaptive, flexible common sense reasoning um, isn't new. Um, the German philosopher Martin Heidegger thought that our everyday interactions with the world presupposed that we have inside us a vast amount of common sense knowledge. 
So Heidegger argued that we're only ever aware of the tip of the iceberg of this information inside us. More recently, um, the American philosophers John Searle and Hubert Dreyfus have taken up Heidegger's idea and they've labelled this common sense database that you have in your head um, the background. And the objection that John Searle and Hubert Dreyfus have raised for human-level artificial intelligence is that it's not clear how to program a computer to have a human-level background. So I think that we should distinguish here between an in-principle barrier to human-level artificial intelligence and a merely practical barrier. An in-principle barrier would block a machine from ever achieving human-level intelligence, no matter how much our technology advances. If there is an in-principle barrier to human-level artificial intelligence, we might as well just give up on the project now. Now, neither Searle nor Dreyfus, much as they would have liked to, has succeeded in showing that the problem of acquiring a human-like background poses an in-principle barrier to artificial intelligence. So at best, their arguments have been to show that the problem of creating human-level artificial intelligence um, poses a formidable practical challenge. And they do seem right about that. There doesn't seem to be a simple solution um, to this problem. And based on the current state-of-the-art in AI, it would take an absolutely massive amount of resources, both a massive amount of design resources and computational resources, um, to have a machine with a human-like background. But there's a big leap from saying that to saying that human-level AI is, in principle, impossible. So I just want to finish up by ending on a a positive note. So we know that machines can do common-sense reasoning. We are those machines. So we've got an existence proof. We know that it can be done by a machine. Some of the most promising work today in AI uh, draws on cognitive neuroscience to try to work out what it is about us humans um, that enable us to do um, things that computers currently can't do, like common sense reasoning. It's very early days, but the goal is to find um, what it is about us humans that enables us to do this in a way that isn't tied to human biology. So to try to deduce what are the computational principles that our brains use and try and replicate those in artificial devices. So on the positive side, the solution to this problem is out there but it could be that the solution um, turns out to be very, very complicated indeed. And if that's the case, then it may forever lie outside our technological abilities or our willingness to invest resources um, to create an artificial machine with human-level intelligence. Thanks. Thanks very much, Mark. Let's move on to Kate. Um, Yeah, I I sort of share some of your optimism in that um, you can't write it off completely that the possibility is there. And there's a bit of a split in the cognitive systems camp. The people, there's the, there's the good old-fashioned AI, GoFi, which they said, you know, the, the brain is like a computer, it has these neurons, it has these signals, um, we can try and build a system that replicates that. And there's, there was a lot of arguing back and forward over whether or not that was the correct approach to take. And nowadays there's also another approach, which is a more embodied approach that says we are... We inhabit a body with all these senses and we, we make sense of our environment through our interactions with it. And perhaps we don't have to actually mimic the brain in a, in a computational way, maybe as Mark was saying. There are other ways of doing this without bringing into it an actual computational model of that brain. Um, perhaps there's something more, or perhaps there's something else happening. Um, so I think that's a, that's a very interesting thing. And the idea that um, human-level 
um, AI as a realistic possibility, um, it's still a goal. It's still it's still there. It's still one of the goals of artificial intelligence. Um, it's just a very it's going to be a very difficult one probably to reach. And at the moment, it's not within our grasp. But hopefully, moving forward, we'll see new ways as we explore. We're learning things about the brain all the time and about the mind. Uh, yeah. So hopefully, something in the future will get closer. Could I just add one thought to to Mark's, uh, I think Mark called it an existence proof. Mark said that we we know that human-level AI is possible on machines because it's happening on machines which we all carry around in our skulls. I'd just like to add to that uh, another thought, which is that we know something about the kind of machines that can do the job. We know that they can run on the power of, roughly speaking, a 60-watt bulb, um, that they can do it with very, very slow biochemical processing speeds, very, very slow compared to what's possible on silicon. And we know that they can do it with very limited resources of memory and, and so on. So that's, that's, a, that, that's a little kind of caution to the thought that um, it's possible... Um, I mean, it is possible that, that the figuring out how our brains do it will always be impossible for us. Perhaps our brains just aren't good enough um, at thinking, to do the thinking required to figure out how they do it. <laughs> but if they are good enough at some point, then it does seem quite likely that once we get there, then the machines we create won't have those limitations of processing speeds and needing to run on 60-watt bulbs and access to limited memory and so on. So there is quite a plausible case for thinking that they might get much smarter than we are at that point. And that's just an, that's a sort of extension of the Marx existence proof in a direction which it seems very natural to go once you start thinking about how we actually do it with what we have in here. Yeah, I want to approach the subject of what it's going to look like from the um, technological and from the, and research point of view. So uh, I think that we have every reason to be optimistic about this question or what we're going to be able to do um, because the technological advances are unparalleled. So I'll just give you one, one example at the moment. Um, there's this holy grail of um, having a persistent memory because the, the data that we have, the amount of data that we have is so, so massive. And the RAM memory that we have, which is the, the really quickly accessible stuff that you don't have to write on disks, is actually very small still. Um, so the question is, could we, and the disks are slow and massive and so on, and so, so they don't allow us to do, uh, to access vast amounts of data instantaneously and process it instantaneously. So, uh, so the question is, could we invent this magical, uh, vast, uh, persistent memory? Well, HP and other companies are, are and researchers are uh, working on this question and um, trying to find a solution to it. And uh, recent, the recent advice, advances of what they're looking into uh, is the photonic memory, which is super, super fast and vast. So, um, so you can imagine that the whole Google 
data center could fit into a one-by-one cubic meter box. Can you imagine that? And can you imagine accessing all of that data instantaneously and computing with it? I mean, you know, the potentials are vast, and I think that... uh, if we manage to, 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 to invent and find this uh, magical memory, and it might be photonic memory, uh, then I think that there will be a real step change in, in the development of uh, uh, AI and in the technological progress that, of what we will be able to do and how we'll be able to um, uh, address these, these problems. So, yeah, I think that we have every reason to be optimistic. Thanks. I'd now like to invite, again, three questions from the audience on this particular issue. Um, So let's start over on on this side of the room, um, and then we'll we'll go across to the the woman, maybe five or six rows from the back, and then we'll go to the very back after after that. Um, Okay, so the first question was from, from over here. Yeah, hi. Um, do any of you feel that human AI conscious can be like um, can human AI ever become conscious and if so can it like you know ever love or stuff like that like love, love other human AIs or like humans uh, stuff like that innit thanks yeah. great great question uh, let's yeah uh, now, now, now this now from here thanks yeah, hi, thanks. So the, the question was about whether we can have this human capacity in artificial intelligence. And I guess my question is something like, um, why would we want to have human capacity in, in AI? So I guess there are different ways of understanding what human capacity amounts to. You mentioned this example about the emptying the bin. And I'm thinking of the example of the, of the automatic cars in the same way. It seems like that could come up unexpected snags and the machine could find ways of solving this and plausibly it, it, the same thing we could create a machine that could work in the same way for the bin um, so the thing is it's, it's solving the task it's solving it in the way that's very different from the way a human would solve it it's not relying on this common sense flexible reasoning but if that's what we mean by human capacity why would we want AI to function in that way why would we want it to reason in the way human agents reason Great, thanks. And now there was also a question from the very, the very back row. Thank you. Um, just the point uh, Dr. Yannick raised, and I'd agree with that, that the processing power of the, the analytics engines are only a boundary. They're kind of confined by time. We will get there. It's just a matter of time when we get there. But I kind of go back to the point about Dr. Devlin. She talked about the aspiration of artificial intelligence or the aspiration to have artificial intelligence. I wouldn't say that that's a definition of an aspiration. I mean, back to the point of why do we want, what's the outcome of artificial intelligence? Where, where philosophically we want to take that? Something that pure technological aspiration really... <coughs> There's no end to that. So where, where are we going philosophically with that? Great, thanks. Yeah, so, again, three very interesting thoughts. I mean, this issue of whether AI can be conscious, whether it can experience love. This issue of why we should want, you know, if common sense is so much so important to human intelligence, why should we really care about common sense if there are other ways to solve a given problem? 
and also these further reflections on what the, what the aim of the, what, what we're trying to achieve in doing this kind of research in the first place. Um, Mark, thoughts yeah. on that, and then we'll go to Hugh. So those are, those are three great questions. Um, so, so just first on, on, on whether um, human level, if you, supposing you had a human level AI system, would it be conscious? Um, I think it's very difficult to know what it is about us that makes us conscious. So um, it's quite difficult to say what, what we should require of a machine in order to be conscious. Um, so there's, there's lots of interesting discussion on um, whether there are any in-principle objections to machines having consciousness, but I just don't think that we're in a position to, um, uh, to make any judgments on, on the matter because we're, we're in complete ignorance about what, what's responsible for our own consciousness. Um, can, can it love... Um, it's a good question. I'm not sure what's, what's required in order for, for some, some other agent to, 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 to love you. I think that... Um, <laughs> um, I think I want to take that together, actually, with the second question, which is, why would we want a human-level AI? Um, so um, so that... So what we've been discussing so far in this question is a, a possible objections to creating a system which has human-level artificial intelligence, the same sort of capacities and abilities as, as a human being has. And I think it's a natural question to ask, well, why would you want... You know, it looks like it's going to be an enormous engineering job to produce something like that if it's possible. Why would you want to do that? It's re- easy enough to make a human being. And anyway, human beings are a bit of a nightmare anyway, so <laughs> we don't... <laughs> if, you, if you want a particular task done, then, you know... The, the, the best way to do it might not be to create a human-level AI to do it. Um, so I think, I think that we're going we're to probably come on a bit more to this question later in, later in this session. I think it's a very good question to ask, and my own suspicion is, is that it's very unlikely that we'll, we'll see um, human-level AI because um, I don't think we would, uh, we're going to invest the engineering resources in, in creating such systems. I think our interests just lie overwhelmingly in other areas. Okay, uh, Kate, then, and then Hugh. Yeah, so, I mean, it, it, um, can it kind of, uh, will it have consciousness, could it love? Um, I think that's a really interesting question. And um, if we got to that stage, I mean, if we, ha- if we had uh, a system that was self-aware enough, that it was aware of what it was and what its role was, would we class that as conscious? Would we, would we say that that meant the machine had a consciousness? Do we want to have that? I think it's a, it's a reasonable goal that we want to push technology to see what we can do. It's, it's, it's pretty, we've done it with lots of other things. It's, pre, it's a, pr- a pretty common goal to have to try and see how far we can take something. And there are roles for machines that can care, that can have some kind of... Um, empathy towards other humans and I'll talk about some of those in a second in terms of care and companion robots um, so I think, I think it's a reasonable goal I, but I would agree with Mark that I think it's a goal that's very far off to have that level of, of interaction um, so yeah Thank you. Um, just to pick up on a couple of things um, one is about the, the, the consciousness and, and love I, I, I thought Mark could have said something a little bit stronger there namely that his existence proof works just as well for consciousness and love as it does for intelligence. We know it's possible in machines because, again, it happens in us. So um, we don't know what it would take in an, a non-biological machine, but I think we have no reason to think that it's not possible. Whether we should build those machines is another question, and I'll, I'll touch on that a little bit in, in my section later. On, on the question, why do we want human-level AI, I think it's a very good question, but um, 
there, there's a sort of presumption there that it's kind of under our control. It's a question we can decide. Um, and I think one of the features of the landscape, and I think it's becoming very evident in the last few years, becoming increasingly evident, is that as the commercial and other sorts of pressures to build better and better AI increase, there's a danger that those decisions are going to be taken out of our hands. Now, if you ask why should there be any commercial interest in human-level AI, well, one thought is that, well, if you can get to human-level AI, you can get beyond it. And there are sort of commercial advantages to having something that's smarter than people because it will outperform people, even very smart people, in all sorts of domains, including, of course, um, sort of military and security domains. So there's a danger of an AI arms race um, where part of the, not, not the only challenge, I mean, that people will be interested in specialist AI there too, but there might well be advantages in having general purpose AI. Um, so um, it, I think it's a good question, but there's, we, we have to step back about a bit and think about whether we could stop it, even if we just decided that we wanted to. Mm. Yeah, I would say that that I think that the research that we do, I, we are driven by um, getting systems to do things for specialized tasks, to, uh, to do them intelligently in order to help us rather than to replace us. So I, I, I'm not particularly worried about, you know, is it human-level intelligence? I think that if it's intelligent for a particular task, is, we can make huge progress in that alone. So I think that that is the driving force. Thanks very much. Uh, I think before we leave this issue, I, I have to press you, Mark, on this so far unchallenged assertion that humans are machines. Because um, <laughs> presumably for sceptics of AI, um, which perhaps there's not many on this panel, that's precisely the mistake, isn't it, to, think, to go in thinking that humans are machines. And maybe to put some substance on that, I mean, to start with this idea that humans are receiving sense inputs and they've got to try and work out what context they're in and what rules to apply from those inputs... In a way, that's precisely the mistake uh, for, for people like Dreyfus who want to instead say, well, that's not what we are. We're these embodied creatures that are always in a context, that always exist, sort of thrown into the world, so to speak. Um, so why think humans are machines? So that's, um, so that's a, it's a, it's a good question. So um, the... I think, I think that... Um, most people, even the sceptics of AI, think that um, the way in which humans are able to produce um, the kinds of um, uh, to, to be able to do the tasks that we can do, to be able to do kind of the general reasoning that we do and get around in the successful way that we do and to solve these sort of problems that we've been discussing, um, is purely down to our physical makeup and the way in which our physical makeup processes incoming information. Um, there's a dispute about whether it's the computation which our physical system is performing which is responsible for it or whether it's something other than the computation but still to do with the physical makeup. Okay? But everyone is on board with the idea that it's still something, something physically about us and that you could, you could in, in principle, reproduce it within a, with another physical system. Um, where folks might get off the board, might get off the boat is in the case of um, consciousness where... Um, 
um, there are uh, there's, there's an industry in making arguments that uh, even uh, if you reproduce all the physical properties of the system, you might not reproduce the conscious properties. So, um, so this is why maybe I was a little bit hesitant to, to, to go to make the assertion that that you you did that uh, we've got the existence proof for consciousness because in our, in our own case we're we're still a bit unclear about what's responsible for our conscious properties. Uh, my own view is to is to agree with you actually on on that. That uh, yeah. Okay, thanks. Um, let's move on then to our third key question, which is this issue of human AI interaction and how we can expect the progress of AI to transform human lives over the next century or so. And to introduce us to that topic, we have Kate. Okay, so we're already using AI to transform human lives, and we've heard some examples. And I want to look at a particular area, which is robotics. Um, And robots already exist in various forms today. You've got factory production lines or in, in medicine and medical surgery. Um, or advanced domestic appliances like a robot vacuum cleaner, for example. And um, there's a really strong move currently in research, especially there's an EU flagship project on this, about robot companions for citizens. There's a very big emphasis on robots playing a social role. And it is, and I quote from, um, from their sort of a flagship website, it's an, eco- an ecology of sentient machines that will help and assist humans in the broadest possible sense to support and sustain our welfare. And I make specific mention of the ethical and social implications of social robots. And care and companion robots are already out there. They're a class of technology that requires um, a robot to, a machine to learn and to think, so to be a cognitive system. And these cognitive systems have their roots in cybernetics from the 1940s. And the motivation behind them was to have some kind of artificial system with with some form of mental capability and mental capacity. Um, These days, an artificial cognitive system is considered to be a system that's able to act or reason about a situation in response to its perception of its environment and to be able to learn from this. Um, And so where is this going to go? Well, I mean, we already have these companion robots, and there's examples like... um, fluffy pet seal robot, Paro, who is used in nursing homes to give sort of therapeutic um, benefits to old people as a companion. We have care robots who can assist with healthcare tasks, things like that. We also have sex robots, um, which is <laughs> my particular area of research, but I'm not going to go into too much detail there because you can imagine what they're about. Um, <laughs> So uh, I don't like predicting the future. I don't like trying to work out what's going to happen 100 years down the line because I'll be proved wrong. Um, They always go a different way from the way you think. Technologies can be sustaining. They can be incremental developments to technologies that we know exist already. Or they can be disruptive and they can really drastically alter the fabric of society. And those are the unexpected ones. Um, In 1943, Thomas Watson, who was president of IBM, said... I think there's a world market for maybe five computers. So um, that was a little bit disruptive then when, when uh, personal computing took off. So I want to stick to talking about the sustaining technologies, which are the successive improvements. And I think we, don't, we aren't really going to be massively aware of major changes. They're going to be incremental. In 100 years' time, we'll have made developments in things like the driverless cars, the self-driving cars, um, the companion robots, the healthcare assistant, a robot vacuum cleaner that actually knows to stop when it gets somewhere or knows that the edge of a rug is not a cliff, things like that. Um, 
I don't think we're going to be anywhere near the singularity, and if we are, then you know I've got more things to worry about than being proven wrong there. So I think we're going to see a gradual acceptance of robotics in particular, and we'll become used to them performing very specific domain-related, domain-specific tasks, as has been said already. Um, Human societies have long speculated about technology that can assist in in human form as well. It goes right back to Greek legends. Um, Hephaestus created an army of mechanical golden maidens. Um, And King Mu in ancient China had a life-size mechanical figure. Da Vinci had uh, an autonomous knight in armour. And then we've got science fiction, where stories just abound of these... uh, robots in human form or these machines in human form that can help us or fight us. So alongside the helper machines come those that sort of break Asimov's law of robotics. So we've got already the AI community, robotics community, is calling for a ban on things like autonomous weapons that engage targets without any human intervention. So um, those, as he was saying, there's, there's the potential for an AI military arms race that could be incredibly de- um, destructive. It doesn't require the resources and the, the materials that something like nuclear, um, nuclear weapons need, and it could be utterly devastating. So technology, the technologies are never neutral. There's always some kind of um, social or cognitive or political agenda behind them, and socially, uh, the implications are that they can alter the way in which our interaction amongst individuals changes. And the internet, for example, without even going into AI, the internet is a great example of that. It's brought millions of people together. It's forged new communities. It's driven new models of commerce. It's established new forms of crime. It's led to love. It's led to trolling. It's led to surveillance. It's led to belonging and identity. So I think we need to look at technology and see where it's going because law, ethics, policy cannot keep up with the changes in technology and I think there's a lot of research to be done into those areas um, to find out just where um, human-like AI could be leading us. Um, So the social consequences of human or superhuman AI are what we make them because we are in control of it. Um, But the law and policy is playing catch-up and if we are developing human-level AI, I think we need to think in advance about how we do this with a sense of responsibility. Thanks, Kate. Thoughts from Hugh? Um, thanks, Kate. Could I just pick up on um, this, this idea of the, um, the, the various reasons, including commercial reasons, for developing sort of empathetic, empathetic robots? Um, I mean, one of the things that I've noticed as I started to become involved with people who think about the long-term future of AI is that there's a little bit of a split in the field between people who think that the, the sort of desirable development path is a path where the AI will always be a machine in a box. It'll just be a machine, something we can use as a tool for our own purposes. And people who think that the, the long-term goal will be for, to produce intelligences that have interests of their own. Um, now, it seems to me that that intersects with the kinds of things that you're talking about because it looks like there's going to be this commercial pressure to produce things which, even if they don't actually have, don't actually have interests of their own, certainly behave as if they do. I mean, and not just the, the, the sex robots, but no, the, the, the companion robots who will be built to, to um, have people believe that, that they are their friends, that sort of thing. Um, now, that doesn't necessarily lead to, to in the direction of um, artificial... Um, beings that have interests of their own, but it, it certainly leads a long way away from 
the conception of something that you just keep in a box for security purposes. And do you have any thoughts on that? Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, because I think um, we make a connection to the technologies we use, and people will uh, anthropomorphize anything. You know, we get attachments to things all the time. We're attached to our cars. Um, we're attached to coffee machines, you know, you name it. Someone's got a good relationship with a piece of technology. Our phones, for example, phones are incredibly personal. When is the last time that you let someone else use your phone? It's really, really personal. You don't want to hand it over to someone else because it's your piece of technology and you are lost without it. Um, and that's completely revolutionised how we behave in public now in that we will walk along staring at our phone with our heads down rather than looking around us. It's had a massive social impact. And I think this connection that people form, the connections people form with technology... Um, can, be, can lend itself very well to this idea of machines that are outside of the box. Um, and they're already there. We, you know, it's, it's looking down the road of, of um, robots as pets almost or as, um, as companions. Yeah. Yeah, I want to pick up on the point of how, how our lives are going to change uh, due to these AI systems. Uh, especially in relation to work, because I read somewhere the, some of the most pessimistic forecasts are that by 2020, uh, 47% of our jobs will disappear because of the AI systems, so, and the robots will replace us. So are all of our jobs going to disappear? You might, you know, it's a legit, legitimate question, and I... Uh, I don't think I don't think so. Yes, some jobs will disappear. Um, I think most work will profoundly change. Uh, we will do work in a very different ways, and we, there will be lots of new jobs that will be created, um, like the, what you've suggested, alluded to that you know we did this in a particular way, but now we uh, it opened up the gate to a whole new area of new uh, new ways of looking at it, new ways of working. Um, yes, yeah, so, uh, and I, actually I don't think that this is something to be afraid of. I think it's no bad thing. I mean, uh, most of those kinds of jobs, jobs are soul-destroying. Uh, a lot of them are harmful, and for quite a few of them, nobody really wants to do them anyway. So, you know, it's quite good to have uh, these intelligent systems uh, who are, which are going to take over those types of jobs and jobs that come first to mind that, uh, that I can foresee is obviously the factory workers. We already have human-less factories in China. Um, uh, drivers of lorries and taxis. Um, uh, postmen delivering stuff. Accountants. Um, <laughs> Seems harsh. <laughs> human translators. Uh, um, and, and non-clinical medical professionals. Uh, you know, um, the way we work, I think, uh, will completely change. I think we are inventing systems that will... Um, uh, the, the future is in the hands of human experts that will be um, assisted by these expert systems that we call intelligent. And I'm, I might want to... Um, Expose one one uh, example, which is in personalised medicine, because my colleagues and I were working in this area as well. And um, you know, we have we have all the data 
about a particular chemical makeup of the drug. We have all the data about the biological cellular structure of a particular illness, and we have all the data about the genome of a, of a, a geno genetic makeup of, a, of an individual. Now, putting all of these uh, pieces of data together in very complex networks, we are having new algorithms that can tackle this and do put the, all of this information together. Now, a human expert, a human uh, 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 doctor is incapable, it doesn't ha that he or she doesn't have that kind of processing power to, to be able to consider all of these pieces of information to, to establish what the best diagnosis is and what the best drug for that particular person is. So uh, having expert systems that are going to assist human experts are, is going to be vital, I think, in the future. It's also going to change how we invent drugs because we no longer will have to have massive clinical trials for a drug to work for the majority of the people. It only needs to work for me and my makeup. So uh, I think all of this is going to really revolutionize how we work and who we work with and what kind of systems we rely on. Thanks. Yeah, let's move on, if we can, to take some um, questions on this issue from members of the audience. Um, let's have one from the very front row here, middle of the front row. Um, and then we'll go, go back to, I think, six rows from the back after that. Hi. Um, to what extent can we rely on artificial intelligence? Like, at what, at what point can we say it's time, it's gone too far, it's time to stop? Great, thanks. I know. Good evening. Uh, my name is Stuart McIver. I run an ad agency. Uh, thank you very much for an interesting presentation. Uh, can I ask the panelists, each one of them, to answer a simple question for me? Given the title, Will Machines Rule the World? Given that will is a future tense, can I ask each person to give me a yes or no? <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, maybe an explanation. Let's have the, the end of the third row from the front. Yeah. Um, hello. Um, I was just wondering when AI will win the Nobel Prize Help <laughs> I, to, to get to a stage where they're actually thinking beyond where we, a normal individual can think. So actually think, uh, so like an Einstein or a Turing. Thank you. Yes. Uh, three great questions. I think the one of Will machines rule the world, yes or no, is one that I have to postpone until the very end, because it would, we need to keep you here um, <laughs> up to that point. But this issue of when to, how far, is there a point at which we should stop doing AI research because we've gone too far, or will that point never arise? And this issue of, well, how long will it be before we can expect AIs to be displacing humans, not just from their jobs as, as taxi drivers, perhaps, but as Nobel Prize-winning scientists? Um, very interesting issues. Um, Kate, would you like to... Um, right. In terms of when we should stop in, sort of in a cautionary way, I don't know. I don't know that we're going to get to this, this stage where we have to worry about that. Um, so I can sort of get out of answering that by saying, not in my lifetime. <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't know. Um, is there a point when it should stop? Um, there have to be controls in place. Um, there, have to be, there have to be policies and laws in place. And like any policy or law, these are things that can be broken. These are things that can be fought over. Um, but I do think there need to be checks. Um, certainly when it comes to things like um, 
autonomous weapons uh, definitely need to be checks in place. It's something that I would strongly advocate for um, because it's it's something that has the potential to do serious damage. Less so than you know worrying about. I'm not going to worry about the vacuum cleaner just yet, but definitely worrying about the kind of kill decisions that are being made on a battlefield autonomously. Um, I think there is a point when we have to stop or at least check what's being done. Thanks. Hugh? Um, I'd like to... um, Well, I'll say something about the will machines rule the world um, in in my section and explain why I think we can't give a yes or no answer to it, a typical philosopher response. (laughs) But I'll come to that. But but on on the... when. when is it, if any, uh, might it be time to stop, Christian? I'm inclined to say it's not a matter of stopping, it's a matter of steering. I mean, I think um, even in our present state of ignorance, it's pretty clear that there are potentially huge benefits in future AI. Now, it may be the case that there are also some huge risks, but if so, it, it seems silly to, to, to stop and deny ourselves the benefits. It seems sensible though, to steer and try and make sure that where we end up is somewhere in the region of the maximum benefits and not somewhere else. So I, I think that, that, that there's a good case for going cautiously. There's a very good case for trying to understand what the future possibilities are so that we can steer ourselves towards some and away from, from others. But I, I think that... Um, um, apart from the, the stopping in the sense of not going down one path and going down another path instead, uh, I, I don't think stopping is is either realistic or, or desirable. I'd like to uh, pick up on the question about will AI win a Nobel Prize? So I suspect that what you're meaning here is will AI be able to invent new knowledge that we don't Uh, possess yet and yeah sure sure we're doing this research now we have systems that that uh, make new conclusions produce new knowledge already of course it's all in in its infancy and you know my research is in a particular area of human uh, thinking and producing new knowledge new solutions to problems but uh, yeah, I think that we will have systems that will be uh, uh, on the level of inventing things that we haven't thought of before and that we haven't seen before. Absolutely. Which, which Nobel Prize? <laughs> there is no Nobel Prize in computer science, so <laughs> Turing Award. <laughs> Although I would say that while while you know we may wonder whether or not they will perhaps they are capable of winning the Nobel Prize, but what about the Turner Prize? Can they be creative enough to create something artistic of value to us? Well, we have systems that are creating paintings. But are are they (laughs) art? Are they art, yes. I think that's that's an area. We have systems that are producing music. Yeah. Um, So, yeah. Do we consider them art? Just because they were made by machine. Um, so yeah, I want, I want to talk a little bit about the Nobel Prize question as well. So I, th- I think it reveals something uh, about how um, the production of scientific knowledge has changed dramatically since the, the Nobel Prize was, was created. So I think there's, there's a strict limit on the number of people that the Nobel Prize could be awarded to uh, for in a particular area. I think it is it three people most can win. Um, so already, you know, a, a lot of no- the greatest 
piece of, think the greatest discoveries in science in the past few years, a lot of them have been uh, collaborative, massively collaborative endeavours. So one of the things that stands out is the detection of the Higgs boson at the LHC. There are thousands and thousands of people involved in doing that. You know, it would be a, a prime candidate for an award of the Nobel Prize, but you cannot give the Nobel Prize to the entire team of people. Um, now one, no, one of those, no one of those people was responsible for, um, uh, for, for the discovery. Uh, they did it jointly, but the prize doesn't reflect that. So it, it's, not, it's not a big step from thinking about um, the production of scientific knowledge as a massively collaborative endeavour involving humans to thinking about the way in which those humans are using very, very sophisticated um, computational tools to help them in their discovery. Um, so you might think, well, in addition to the people actually doing the experiments and the theoreticians, perhaps the people writing the software and involved in writing those, those pieces of software should be getting some credit too. And then it's not a big step to start thinking, well, perhaps some of those pieces of software, they're not just simply engineered to, to, to behave in a certain way, but they actually involve some kind of learning uh, themselves, so they involve learning algorithms. So perhaps some of the success, some of the reason why this uh, you know, a particular particular discovery was made was down to something which uh, a computer system had managed to learn. So I think that, yeah, once we start shifting to see scientific knowledge as collaborative, collaborative involving computers and collaborative involving learning computers, then it's not a big step to think that computers should be getting the credit to. Okay, let's move on now to our fourth key question, which is whether AI poses an existential risk. Does it threaten the very existence of our species? And to introduce us to that topic, we have Hugh Price. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, I want to start off by outlining three, outlining three possible paths to a, to a non-human future, a, a future which has few or, 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 or no humans in it. And I want to make it clear at the beginning that I'm not offering predictions here. Um, what I'm offering is little, little more than speculation, but I think it's speculation with a point. Uh, I, I, it's intended here as a gesture towards the complexities that we run into if we try to think about possible futures, long-term futures involving AI. How long-term? Well, um, possibly late this century, probably later than that. Um, I, I'm not particularly cautious about making predictions because I won't be around to see them falsified on that sort of timescale. But, but I, I just don't feel qualified to make predictions, so I'm not going to make any firm predictions there. The first possibility I'll call extinction by enhancement, and it's the possibility that gradually we become machines. So we change ourselves, gradually making ourselves partly or wholly non-biological. Now, some people say this is already happening in our relationship with our smartphones, but in future it might happen much more dramatically. And it isn't hard to imagine how at each stage we might want the next upgrade, hardware upgrade or software upgrade, just as we do with our phones. And that in the long term, a lot of our cognition, a lot of our intelligence would be running on non-biological hardware, not on the kind of stuff that we come with. Now, what does it mean to say that we're changing ourselves here rather than replacing ourselves? Presumably it's that at each stage we regard ourselves as descendants of the previous stage. So we, we have that sense of continuity. We identify with previous generations in both senses, in both the biological and the, and the sort of software update sense of the term. Now, that would be a kind of extinction of humanity if continued into the very long term where we became largely or wholly non-biological. 
But it's a kind of extinction which, in other ways, is familiar to us. Um, think of the way in which feudalism became extinct in Britain, for example. Most of us... Oh, oh, yeah, I expected that, yes. But, oh, um, we might have to go back a bit further to find a, a real-life example. But we, I mean, th- those kinds of things do happen. I mean, I'm old enough to have seen an enormous amount of um, social change, much of it for the better, during my own lifetime. So, you know, cultures, various cultural features become extinct, and it's a good thing, on the whole, in my view. Um, and so I, I think that's one way in which we might become extinct. And it's quite a, I mean, become extinct as biological humans. And that's intended to be an optimistic view. <laughs> <laughs> the second possibility I'll call extinction by, not by enhancement, but by replacement. So it might be a less continuous version of the first. So perhaps we create machines with the kinds of mental lives we value in ourselves, um, conscious among other things, and it's the descendants of those machines who come to replace us at some point. So the light of conscious intelligence continues to burn, um, endowed in some sense with, with, with values that came from us, but it's not burning in us or in descendants of us. Perhaps we survive if the machines are benevolent and we're not in their way, but we no longer control our planet or our destiny. They do. Still, something valuable might have replaced us, and something that wouldn't have existed if it hadn't been for us. So that's another sense in which the future might not contain us, but might contain something that we'd be justified in thinking of as human in some sense. Unfortunately, there's another possibility, and I'll I'll call it extinction by AI catastrophe. And it's the one that bothers some people who think about uh, AI risk the most. Um, and it's the idea that we might be destroyed by some kind of um, accidental runaway AI um, in, in no sense conscious or, or, or valuable in itself. Um, and this is the kind of what some people call the sorcerer's apprentice case, a machine built to optimize for some useful task that finds ways of, of doing that task, of optimizing for it, uh, that we never considered and that turn out to be very bad news for us. So we, we've, the classic example in the literature, you can find this, for example, in, in Nick Bostrom's wonderful book called Superintelligence that came out last year, is, is the, the automated paperclip factory, which discovers that um, by removing certain inbuilt controls on its own software, uh, it can turn all, all kinds of things into paperclips and hence make paperclips um, much more efficiently than it had been before. And it sort of sets out and turns the entire planet into paper clips, including us. Uh, now, I think we'd agree that that's not a particularly uh, valuable future, not because paper clips are not useful things in, in their place, but because we value a lot of other things as well. So there are three very different paths to a long-term future, and each involves human extinction in some sense, um, but in, in very different senses. Uh, And in the first case, and even in the second, it's by no means obvious that it would be a bad thing, though, of course, the details and the timing and other things will matter a lot. Okay, I think I'll leave it there. Thanks, Hugh. So three flavours of extinction, enhancement, replacement, and turning into paperclips. Um, (laughs) Matea? 
I would like to um, raise the, I don't have any answers, but I would like to raise the questions, which is uh, the ethical aspects of all this AI technology. So uh, it's completely reasonable to ask um, who is responsible when a machine that we programmed uh, goes and kills uh, civilians because it hasn't hit the target, or who is responsible if uh, a particular expert systems which diagnosed me with uh, some illness has made a mistake uh, and gave me the wrong drug and I died. Um, uh, so I think that you know these ethical aspects of AI systems, even now, even though they, we might not consider them to be human-like intelligence are absolutely crucial that we need to consider them and there are ethical committees that are being set up much in the same way as when we were doing the um, when there was the uh, nuclear um, advances so that uh, nuclear bombs were a possibility we ha we ha we put in place ethical committees and and various other bodies that would regulate that and I think that that will happen more and more with AI systems as well. Um, um, also, what I, I want to consider also another ethical dimension, is, which is why would the programs that we program, why would we program them to be hostile? So I, I understand that probably people are concerned about the fact that they might turn hostile uh, because they are so super intelligent or they, their intelligence exceeds our intelligence and they decide to be, uh, organize themselves to be hostile. But if we look at the, the, the human society and our progress, it has always in the history been advantageous to us to organize ourselves, uh, to cooperate and to do things for the benefit for, of everyone uh, of course, we have rogue people, uh, and I presume that that's the the the, the, um, the fear that there might be rogue programs. But if they're super intelligent, they will be even uh, better able to judge that it's to their advantage to do things that are good for everyone. So uh, I would just pose that as a question of ethical dimension um, that needs to be considered. Thanks, Mark. Um, so. Um I think that um, the first possibility of extinction by enhancement is, um, if I had to bet on one, I, th I think that's the one I would go for, and I don't think it's any, any bad thing at all. Um, I would suspect that um, the um, extinction by, um, the worry about extinction by catastrophe is, uh, relies on um, um, creating systems which have um, a sufficient degree of autonomy either to reprogram themselves or to, to go off and, and do things which we, which we didn't expect without our ability to kind of unplug them. And um, I suspect that, you know, there are going to be strong reasons why we, we wouldn't want to engineer such systems in the first place. Um, in general, we want systems to be able to solve a very... Um, a specific task in a way which is quite predictable, um, how they're going to behave and how they're going to behave across a wide range of circumstances. Um, so, um, my yeah, my own thought is that I'm not, I guess I'm, I'm I'm not so worried by I'm not so moved by the worry about uh, extinction by um, catastrophe. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I would agree with that. I mean, I for one welcome our paperclip overlords, but I wouldn't actually. I, I don't see that as a as a big threat, paperclips or otherwise. Um, I think that <laughs> I actually quite like aspects of the first scenario, the idea of extending human capabilities into machines, into hardware and software. Um, uh, as you said, with smartphones being, we, we we did that already. We rely on things like navigation by our phone rather than keeping it in our head now. This has got a lot of therapeutic benefits for people. Um, you know, it, it's it, people with memory problems can recall things very, very quickly from their phone. We all enhance our knowledge by googling things that we don't know about. Um, this is not something that we need to fear. We can quite happily embrace it. It doesn't change fundamentally change us. It's just helping us along the way. Um, I agree that I think um, the catastrophe scenario is fairly unlikely. Um, and if I'm wrong, then I'm going to be first against the wall come the singularity. But um, I, think we're, I think we're safe enough from that right now. Thanks. I mean, I'll now invite um, three questions from the audience on this issue. Uh, so let's go th- third row from the front here first. Um, please start. Hi. Um, you talked about enhancement through external devices. Uh, I wanted to understand what you think about the potential of hybrid technology that actually uses us as machines to connect uh, biologically or with our, with, like literally connect um, so that we become one machine or one human or however you want to look at it. Thanks. And the second was over here. Um, I was wondering if... Oh, it's a bit loud. I was wondering if, um, if we could create conscious beings that could have pleasurable mental states and other sort of mental states that we hold valuable in humans, uh, would we stand under a moral obligation to create them? Thanks. And the third question, let's um, go, I think, about seven rows from the front. So, yeah, so about the comments about the the, the doomsday plot uh, and and the nuclear weapons, because you keep making the comparison, couldn't we say that the real weapons of mass destruction aren't the, you know, nuclear missiles that are in their silos, but they're the automatic weapons that, you know, people use around the world to kill each other? So, considering that, don't you think that there really is a a tremendous risk that artificial intelligence would still lead to, you know, pain and hardship? Thanks. Great. So very interesting questions again. I mean, these issues of sort of personal identity that arise as uh, humans and AIs become ever more integrated. Uh, This question of whether we have a moral obligation to make creatures that may be more intelligent than ourselves. Um, And this thought of whether whether the the risk posed by AI might be this sort of low-level risk of low-grade sort of weapons rather than weapons of mass destruction. I mean, very interesting. Hugh, would you like to respond to these? Um, I'm not sure I have much to say about the third, but on, on the, the point about hybrids, I, I, I do think that if we get to that stage, it's, yes, it's, it's likely that we, it, won't be, it won't be the smartphone model. We're, we're, we'll, we'll have those chips embedded in us or, or, or something else of that kind. Um, so um, um, I think that's the way in which enhancement will go. The, the question about whether um, the possibility of creating a conscious machine would put us under some sort of obligation to create such machines, that's a very interesting one uh, and deeply philosophical. And I do know people in, um, sort of in this general space who, who think that, in, in some sense, the answer is yes. Because, they, I mean, these are people, um, 
um, philosophers called consequentialists who, who think that the, the basic moral imp- imperative, roughly speaking, is to maximize happiness. And that in the universe as it is, um, as far as we know, happiness only exists in, in a tiny, in a few places, like, like on, on, on Earth where there are creatures evolved enough to be happy, and to, well, to be conscious, first of all, and, and to be conscious in, in, a, in a beneficial rather than a, uh, a non-beneficial way. Um, and these people will say that if you look around in the universe, you can see that there's huge potential for it to support vastly more happy, conscious life than it does at the moment. Every star that we see out there in our galaxy and all the other galaxies is a, a, a kind of source of energy which could be used for producing happiness. Um, and if you put it like that, um, the, the gap between what we achieve at the moment and, and what we could achieve, even if you don't think that, that, that our primary goal should be to populate the world, I mean, the, the rest of the, the galaxy with, with happy machines, uh, you, you could end up thinking that we could do a lot better than we're doing at the moment um, and that there is some sort of imperative to go in that direction. Thanks. I, I wanted to uh, pick up on the uh, question about the weapons and the ethical committees. I, I, that, that was the point that I was trying to make, which is it is a real risk. It is a real philosophical question of responsibility. And I'm very uh, pleased to see that there are uh, national initiatives to establish these uh, ethical committees to, to, to ponder on these questions and try to su- suggest some solutions. So absolutely a real um, risk and question to consider. Yeah. Well, um, so on, on the hybrids, I think this is uh, definitely where, where, where we're headed and the, the smartphones is just the first step because, uh, you know, if... Uh, you, as, you, as one gets older and you know your memory starts to fade if someone was able to tell you well you know we'll be able to attach an electronic device to your head that will be able to supplement your memory give you you know there the, are the interesting studies of um, just giving um, um, sending particular signals to the hippocampus which is able to um, stimulate the memory and in certain cases and improve cases improve performance on memory tasks why not build that in a more sophisticated version of that in um, some of the most interesting work being done in cognitive neuroscience is done on human-computer interaction and decoding. So um, these are um, um, uh, systems where you, you're, you're taking a recording of the neural signal and the computer's trying to work out what the brain is doing and then anticipate what the brain wants to do. So there, there are nice things where you know, the system seems to be able to work out what you want before you want it yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so I could assist, see us in you know, a few hundred years' time being... Um, organisms which have all these devices which are able to do a lot more than we, than we can currently do and do it a lot faster and us being very happy with that. And I, I would even go far to say not even before a few hundred years' time, I think we've, we've always been working towards enhancing ourselves and the fact that I'm wearing glasses, um, I'm a cyborg. Um, I can see because without them I can't see more than a foot away, so I've already enhanced my ability. Um, I work, I've got a PhD student at the moment, we work on sensory motor theory, so we're looking at how we can um, understand our environment through different senses, and we've been looking at sensory augmentation to um, see how you can provide an extra sense um, 
to some, in our case we're working on some previous work by uh, Nagel's lab um, looking at how you give someone a sense of north all the time by giving them a belt that they wear that always vibrates in the direction of north we've taken that into a virtual environment to see can you have a virtual character who picks up extra senses as well um, so I think this is, this is a very fast moving area there's lots of stuff going on um, and I, I think it's a, it's a really nice thing it's a really good thing and it's very beneficial to people so I'm, I'm, yeah hopefully we don't even have to wait a few hundred years hopefully that's on the way Thanks. So, Hugh, I wonder if you have any closing thoughts on this question of how we can mitigate the risk of catastrophe. Because Matteo raised, I mean, two interesting possibilities, I guess. One is very tight sort of human regulation involving ethics committees and so on. And the other is this idea that a super intelligent machine, you know, with any luck, would also be sort of super moral and would work out for itself that killing us is not in its interests. I mean, do you hold out any hope that, that they might mitigate the risk? Um, Yes, some hope. I mean, I I think that the... um, I mean, there's a huge amount of work that that, that needs to be done in this area, and it's one of the reasons why I'm so delighted that the the Levy Human Trust has kindly agreed to to fund a centre in Cambridge with branches in Oxford and Imperial and Berkeley to to make a start on some of these issues. Um, I think it's helpful to, to frame it as an engineering challenge, but an engineering challenge with, with several levels. Um, I'm going perhaps from the most technical to, to the least technical. Um, there, I know there, there, there are some people who see the core challenge in AI as a technical challenge of how to ensure that the way in which you design um, the, the machines makes them incapable of this dangerous sort of self-improvement and so on, and who see that as a... Um, that is, is part of what they call the, the containment problem. Perhaps it has a, a more sort of physical dimension to it. Where they're thinking about ways of, of sort of locating the machines in virtual environments so that even if they do suddenly start to get more powerful, they, they're, they're not in direct contact with the external world. So there are technical challenges there. Then um, at the next level, there, there are questions about, and here it con- connects um, with this question of value, this what people call the value alignment problem. How can we design values into the machines so that we, we could conf- confidently let them go out in the real world um, and um, um, let them face challenges they hadn't faced before and, and be confident that at least most of the time they'd make the kinds of decisions that we'd hope that they'd make. And in, in a small way, these uh, issues will have to be dealt with by the self-driving cars, of course, because they'll have to make decisions about... Um, you know, whether they run into that group of pedestrians or to a single person over there. I mean, you know, we can laugh about it, but they will have to do it. And, and if they do it wrong, then they'll be sued. I mean, the, machine, the cars themselves won't be sued, but their makers will be sued, and, and, and rightly so. Uh, and then, stepping back again, I think there's something that I also like to think of as an engineering problem. It's kind of about engineering communities, and communities of the, the, the people who develop these things, and, and the the academics who think about them and, and the people whose job it is to put in place regulation if regulation turns out to be needed. Uh, and I think um, there too, um, we're sort of lucky in that we're at the beginning of what's going to be a long process. And, and uh, if we're clever, we, 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 we can think about the best way to engineer at that level too. Thanks. I mean, one, one last question that we uh, parked earlier. Will machines rule the world, yes or no? Matea? I never want to say uh, no, but 
Not in my lifetime. It's a cop out, I know. But Mark? Uh, yes. <laughs> okay. No. Mm-hmm. Hugh? Um, well, this is why I. I, 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 I want to say I hope so, but, but, but by enhancement, not in any yeah. other way. Okay, not by paper clips. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so two, two yeses, two noes. I mean, I'd, I, would, I guess I would vote yes, I think, to break the tie. Okay, my apologies to everyone who didn't get a chance to uh, ask questions, uh, but thank you very much for coming, and that, let's thank our panelists.